Ditch the suits. Forget boring pitches. Enter John Piccone, your ad tech Don Draper, minus the polyester. This data-driven chameleon navigated from print to the metaverse, leaving ad trails of epic ROI. Now at Adform, the Willy Wonka of ad platforms, John's the golden ticket, guiding brands to candy-coated success. Expect witty jabs, industry insights sharper than diamonds, and maybe even a peek into the pixelated future. Just don't ask about his click shame. Internet black holes happen. Buckle up, podcasters. John's about to drop it knowledge that'll leave you saying, damn, that dude knows his pixels. Booyah. So, get ready to know more than you did yesterday. Welcome aboard the Adotat Show, where marketing, media, and ad tech converge. Fasten your seatbelts as your host, Pisat Latin steers you through the digital world of advertising trends and marketing innovations. Deserve to win when it matters most. Facing multi-billion dollar bet the company litigation? No problem. That's why we're here. Troutman Amin. LLP is a true legal powerhouse. Everyone, welcome to the Don't Show. I am Pesach Latin, dodging coughs and colds with Ricola as my shield. Ready to dive into the digital depths of John Picone, the regional president of the Americas at Adform. John, let's get real. Regional vice president sounds fancy, but are you basically just the Don Draper of digital advertising, charming clients and agencies with data-driven martinis? Yes, that's it. All I can say. That's it? So, is Adform the secret sauce to serving ads in this privacy-free purgatory that we're about to enter, or are we just throwing virtual spaghetti at the metaverse wall. So uh, a little bit about Adform. It's a 20-year-old company based out of Denmark with tech centers in um, in Lithuania and Mumbai. Um, it started out as a dynamic creative optimization company um, and then uh, built off the same code base of an ad server, a DSP, an SSP in Europe, um, and a graphic graph, which we call ID Fusion, which allows us to serve both marketers and publishers uh, in the programmatic marketplace for the past 20 years. Um, and uh, as you said, I, I, I run the U.S. for them. It's about 700 people worldwide. Oh, wow. So it's a, it, how, how large um, are you compared to, let's say, the trade desk? Are you in the same, you consider yourself a competitor? We do. Well, in Europe, where we've had uh, a longer um, run at the market, uh, we are number two, number three in given many, many different given markets and number one in Scandinavia for quite some time because of our our heritage in, in Denmark. Okay. What about this uh, fancy ID fusion doohickey? Does it actually help brands hit their targets without resorting to creepy stalking tactics? Yeah, no stalking going on. So as I mentioned, it's, it's a graph of graphs. And so the company made a really smart decision about three years ago to lay down a bet that with all of the great first-party solutions out there, it's going to be a battle to the end. And probably nobody was going to win that battle. So why wouldn't it make more sense to stitch those given providers together based off of the signals that we get as being a DSP? And so that's what ID Fusion is. It's basically a graph of graphs. We don't hold on to any first-party data, but we get to see the respective signals, totally GDPR compliant. And what this does is it allows for marketers to be leveraging the respective uh, first-party IDs that they use, as well as publishers. But at the same time, we're able to dedupe when we see multiple IDs in the bit stream. We can be people that is, even though we're getting multiple bits. 
and how does that help marketers? So at the end of the day, what we're up against is not only cookie deprecation, where today there's 40% of the marketplace doesn't even have a cookie today. That's the given place. So if Google dropping 1%, I guess we're at 41%, and then maybe we'll be at 45 at the end of February. Um, but when, at the end of the day, when, they're, when the bids are coming across and we get the signal, so we see close to 50 trillion bids on a rolling six-month average, we get to understand who's who behind it, not from a first-party perspective, but from a way in which we can control for reach and frequency. And I think that that classic, classic media math of reach times frequency equals performance. I mean, if there was an E equals MC squared in media, it's reach times frequency equals performance. And I think that's what brands are suffering from, not only in the walled garden, but also in the open internet, because there's not one first party provider that rules the roost. Do you think that um, coming out of Europe, your company has a little bit more insight into privacy protection just because of GB, GDPR uh, and, and Europe's a little bit more uh, privacy centric? A hundred percent. We've been GDPR compliant since the day that it was brought out and we built our stack up from that from, from the ground up, which makes us already compliant here in the US for many of the different states themselves, because we know we see it rolling out state by state instead of federal legislation. Okay, are we so um I noticed that you're uh, integrated with the scope three gizmo. Is this a sustainable marking superhero? Or are we just this is just like jargon laden marketing? No, I don't think it's jargon at all. I think it's it's super legit. I think um, our engagement with them is not just looking in the rearview mirror of how did we do in eliminating um, some of the carbon output by how we're going after which websites, but we can also optimize in real time with that. And my understanding is we're the only DSP today that can optimize in real time off the scope three signal. I think Brian's probably in a better position to talk about if it's quote unquote smoke or beers, we don't see that it is. We see advertisers leaning in and, and have another feather in their cap about helping the planet last. And what, what made uh, Adform want to get into that market? Because it's fundamental to our belief that we need to give back. I mean, you know, we have to take care of ourselves and that's part of our, our stance in, in the marketplace. You know, it, 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 it lines up perfectly with our focus on transparency. We were one of the few DSPs to participate in the ANA programmatic transparency recent report that just came out. We need to get the principals back in control of the relationship with their customers and their prospects. And if we look through the history of the past 30 years of ad tech, ad tech's gotten a little big for its britches in a couple of couple situations. Often has a better understanding of the brands, uh, uh, customers and prospects than the brands themselves. And I don't think that's healthy for the economy and vice versa also for the publishers. And that's not yeah, going to I think it's interesting, Brian, when Brian O'Kelly, um, the CEO of Scope 3, was on here, he did mention that he doesn't think that ad tech is necessarily even the solution. You know, and as, a, as an ad tech guy, he thought even that, that answer was kind of um, out there, but that, you know, the solution isn't just ad tech. It's, it's a lot of other things. Um, yeah, ad tech is a means to an end, right? It's, it's, a, it's an instrument in order to sell more products at less cost for brands. It's, it's, a, it's a tool set. But we need to actually deliver on some fundamentals like transparency and privacy, to your point, and then performance. Um, can shrinking the, uh, the footprint, the carbon footprint, actually mean growing wallets? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you've seen some of the results from the ADA programmatic transparency report, there's a ton of advertising going to MFA, made for advertising websites, and that needs to stop. Go right out of the gate, and, and this is where brands have to lean in and say, 
here's my wait list, none of this, none of that, which obviously doesn't always dovetail so well with their goals of performance. So there's a ton of good work that's been written up in that context about the struggle of being held accountable for a certain given performance metric while at the same time needing to do better um, in, for, for the planet. Um, so that's where I think we're going to see more and more attention. Just takes the first first few movers, and then generally the rest follow. Okay, let's talk about, um, I noticed that it says that campaign performance with ID Fusion um, resulted in a 120% increase in net reach and a 60% reduction in media wastage. Um, what can you tell us about that? So um, we've done multiple, multiple campaigns with many different advertisers. These stats are coming from a specific campaign um, that was audited by PricewaterhouseCoopers to demonstrate that if you could go after all the... Oh, yes, yeah, see, it's OMD and Ronald. Okay, yes, yeah, just yep. noticed that. Yep, yep, yep. So if you can, if you can identify those who are surfing uh, the web without a cookie and you can then target them, two things happen. First, nobody else is bidding on them, so you can get them for less cost. And secondly you can actually find them at scale because we already have 40% that are surfing without cookies. So we know it works, but we wanted to bring in a third party back to our goals of transparency and making sure that we're holding a higher standard for the market. So we had PricewaterhouseCoopers audit those results. And so that's that's what you just read off. Um, is there any, if for some of the brands currently, they're right now feeling like a digital deer in the headlights. What is some advice that you could give them into the cookie-less unknown that's about to happen? I mean, obviously, you 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 already know that fifty percent, approximately, of the people out there don't have cookies, and you guys have yeah. been dealing with this for a long time. So you actually have insight in what the future looks like. Yeah. Well, what's cool about being a DSP and seeing all the bids that come across is we can actually see the respective penetration of all the first parties and the cookies. Right. So the first step is discovering awareness with any. Did you know that this is the given uh, percentage of reach for these given ID providers, right? And one thing that's super duper important is there often seems to be a little bit of confusion around a match rate versus a reach rate, right? So if you are a banking company and you want to match with LiveRamp and you say, great, I had an 80% match rate, that's not the respective reach rate that you can get because you need to have then 80. Your building's not burning down. Do you have to get out? <laughs> right. <It's> not, <laughs> no. just, just, okay. I just want to make sure this is not that important of an interview. Right. If your building's burnt, you may leave. It's <laughs> Go ahead. Writing business at the very least. I think that's what yeah. we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, please, please. What are some concrete examples of brands using Orform ad form to be both marquee marvels and sustainability superheroes? Right. So brands like BMW, IKEA, uh, Sojourn. Uh, HelloFresh, Progressive, these are all companies that have been leaning into ad form to help with identity fragmentation. I mean, the, the fragmentation of audiences in every single marketplace, the linear television, radio, print, across the board, and, it, and it's really tough for a market to aggregate these eyeballs at scale and then evaluate how they're, how they're reaching them and are they hitting their optimal frequency. And then therefore, these metrics have when we only had a couple mediums many, many moons ago, these are baked into the formulas for procurement to understand how much media should go out the door as a percentage of revenue. So we have these historic benchmarks. How much money should I put out? Meaning how many products am I going to sell for that based off of these fundamentals of how many people did we reach? And that's not clear signal now. It's just not. 
And so we got to help them get back to that clear signal, whether it's the walled gardens who are going to do what they need to do in order to grow their business while at the same time being transparent. And specifically where we focus for the open end, where we can provide them with more visibility into effective reach and frequency thanks to ID Fusion. What's the biggest challenge you think for the industry in the next 12 months? Awareness, learning, understanding what's going on behind the curtain. I mean, again, the ANA programmatic, that should be a test for every digital marketer. They should be asked, you know, what percentage do you think is this? What percentage do you think is that? We need to help people understand. And at the same time, and this is happening more and more, the procurement team and the finance team at the brand sitting down with the media marketing team at the brands and coming up with a attribution model that they can both agree upon can set a new baseline moving forward because we're not lacking data. We're lacking the understanding of how to leverage that data for performance and for a, a better a better media ecosystem. Where is the ignorance coming from? Is this agencies? Is this brands? Like what? Where the ignorance? If, if people are not familiar with what actually is going on, why? Why is that? Is it the brands? Is it agencies? Is it is it the middlemen? Like who's who's actually causing the? I guess the lack of knowledge. Well, you know, you just have to read the trace to figure out what's going on in some of those situations, right? I mean, that right. We've seen lawsuit after lawsuit about people trying to get more transparency about what's going on with their data, both from the consumer side and from the business to business side. So we don't really need to touch on that. I think a critical, important piece is that people want to get home in time for dinner and they want to have their data in front of them in bite-sized salient pieces that they know how it's performing. And we're still wrapping our hands around each marketer's needs in that context. And do they themselves have the teams who look at that, work with their agencies who also have those teams and find a common currency in which they're going to move forward with. I mean, there, there are so many use cases where agencies have said, hey, pay us on performance. We'll go out there. We're going to show you how we're going to actually grow your business. And sometimes that's too close to the vest for brands. And they say, nope, we just want you to be that services company. And other people adopt that and say, yeah, let's work on this together. And once you have the that common currency of how they're going to go after the market together, then the data starts to flow in the in the ways that they can get it, right? Not everybody can get the data that they need. Yeah, I want to go a little bit back into your Scope 3 partnership. Can you explain exactly how you integrated with them? Yeah, so, so Scope 3 has, if you will, an index of what they can measure of going out in the marketplace. That's passed in real time back to us based off of campaign activity so that they can give us an evaluation of where certain websites and how many hops are in the ecosystem to um, to reach the target audience. And so we take that into consideration in our bidder. Okay, so I also noticed that you're the first global DSP, according to ExchangeWire, to join the SBTI club. Yes, we are. That, what is SBTI? Oh, Science-Based Target Initiatives. What can you tell yeah. us about this? Well, it just came out. And it's, again, a consortium focused on how we can actually deliver on, on better performance while taking care of the planet. So it's all in line. It's another example of our commitment to transparency and helping brands grow their business while doing Do you think that brands actually care or they're just being forced into doing this? I think it depends on what they're being compensated on inside their building. I mean, I think that it starts from the top. I think everybody cares as a consumer and as a as a as a member of the planet. Um, but I also think that not all of these metrics are hitting their bonus statements yet or hitting why their their objectives and key results. And that takes the leadership from the top to decide, nope, this is going to be part of our objectives and key results for the executive team, and then we're going to bring it down to the organization. 
And then, had, yeah, go, please. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's just, and then you have to go through the evaluation stage, right? And so we're, we're all learning together about what's the best way to go after that. So we're in the first inning here, at least when it comes to the programmatic side. It's only going to be, it's going to be another. We're going to get to the second inning, undoubtedly. Have you had any pushback in the U.S. that this is just like a woke campaign and there's nothing really behind it? Only from folks that aren't that serious about what the intentions are of the business. Right. You think that they just, they just don't understand what's going on? They just think it's, it's greenwashing? If you can't put your hands around something in quantification perspective, then you can't actually go after it. So we're in this stage of looking at how big of a problem is it, and right. then you start to attack it. So again, we're in this discovery and awareness stage. Okay, so imagine you're in a Black Mirror episode where ads are personalized to your deepest desires. Is this an utopia or a dystopia and why? To my deepest desires. Well, let's see. There's something to be said for something that I don't know that I'm interested in yet. And so how do I learn about something that I don't know that I'm interested in about? So the first zero to one in a reach perspective or frequency is critical. And so right. can you deduce from that, based on my historical behavior, what I might be interested in? Potentially. I mean, I think we can see a lot of the walled garden activity getting people more and more into their silos, and then we get into echo chambers. I think that's a little dangerous. Um, so I, I, I don't want to forget about the importance of when somebody says, you gotta read this book. You gotta check this book out, it's amazing. And you, you never thought that you'd be interested in the history of the Vikings and the Brits when they fought in the 800s and how that changed the whole European landscape. But you read it and you find what to take away for the future. Well, history repeats itself. And I think we're all part of that. It's just how does it repeat itself in the context in which you're actually living your life? So advertising is a huge role. How are you guys integrating with AI and, and how, how are you guys going to make sure that you're not... Uh, avoiding becoming obsolete in the age of AI? Well, well, I think we're embracing it to the extent that we can when we're learning about what the privacy concerns are by making sure that the data remains ours. Um, so you can't just willy-nilly start uploading things without the proper rights, et cetera, et cetera, and the impact that goes with that. Secondarily, our first approach has been uh, for our customer support having a chatbot so we can help people get questions faster off of our deep knowledge set. Uh, so we have an AI uh, bot, if you will, that you can go along and help you set up campaigns, which I think is pretty cool. But then when it comes down to who's the best person to target based off of the of the marketplace, the cost thereof, that data needs to be in the system in order to uh, in order to actually optimize off of that. That's not there. So it depends what part of the food chain you want to optimize. Right now, we're optimizing for customer support. If you could just look at the crystal ball in the next uh, 12 months, what would you like to be seeing change in the industry? What does the industry desperately need to change? Transparency. That's ANA, transported, transparent port. Everybody again. needs to see what's going on behind the, behind the curtain, right? I mean, right. if you can see uh, all the respective uh, back and forth between the bids, at least in the programmatic perspective, and you get to see the right. actual filtration, it would change the game. And, and that's what people are missing. And so what, 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 what if stakeholders told you, are they actually interested in transparency? Or are they just, 
are they just nodding their head and they are no no they're they're quite interested the recent stat that i just saw i have it here somewhere was that part of the ana programmatic um study let me make sure i get it right i don't want to just quote it was that uh six percent only six percent of brands think that they're getting the right amount of transparency for their advertising campaigns. So who's to blame? Who's to blame? I think the general tenets of capitalism are to blame. I think that if I built a better mousetrap and I can go and get you users for less cost, it's my business to run my business the way that I want. But at the end of the day, I don't think that when the New York Times built its printing press on the New Jersey Turnpike, that the people that poured the concrete said, well, give me your subscription list. I think they built the printing press. Right. And I think that the New York Times is the is the brand in which consumers have fidelity towards. And if they're going to be sharing data with any brand, it would be that because there's a reciprocal service that comes back to them. A lot of ad tech companies get a lot of insight into consumers that don't have an actual forward facing brand. And that's what needs to change. We need to get the get the data into the hands of the principal. I change up a little bit. I want to talk a little about your career. You climbed the corporate ladder from newspapers to ad tech empires. Do you ever have this, like, I am trapped in Dilbert's cubicle moment? And how did you claw your way out of that? I don't want to claw my way out of this cubicle. I love it. I love <laughs> advertising technology. It's so exciting. Um, right. you know, like, like you said, it's in the, in the mid-90s when we were out selling ad-serving solutions and the cookie was all you really had to retarget. I'll never forget the time when the, the, uh, the agency side ad servers started retargeting folks off of the principal's website. So you could find a New York Times user when they were not on the New York Times. This obviously caused downward pressure of pricing, which obviously impacted journalism at its core because you couldn't afford the same revenue when you could find the quality of a New York Times user when they were checking their Hotmail account at the time. And so there were ways in which you had to pay for users, right? In which you could actually block those cookies from actually being reused. And I think we're going into that ecosystem again. I think that the relationship of the consumer to the brand is where we're walking back into time where those principles will control that relationship. All right. So you've been, you, as I mentioned before, you've been doing this for a long time. What was the most ridiculous marketing campaign you ever witnessed? And did it involve dancing hamsters or a singing CEO? The most ridiculous ad campaign I've ever seen. Never been asked that question before. Ridiculous in a funny way, a good way, a bad way. What yeah. kind of way is ridiculous to find there? I don't care. I don't know. You could be, could be, you could just go like Matt Damon, Super Bowl. <laughs> I think probably the most. I think I, uh, the the Temu ad has been the most ridiculous commercial I've ever seen. I think the campaign that warmed my heart in a ridiculous uh, context is when Mean Joe Green was handed the Coca Cola from the kid after the tough game in football. Dating myself oh, there. But, that's funny because one of my favorite is the my friend Anna Maltese actually did the commercial for The Simpsons 2010 when um what was it when uh what was his name? Um the guy who ran the uh nuclear plant got he lost all his stuff and at the end he's handed a Coca-Cola. That's one of my favorite commercials of all times. But yeah, yeah it's the same thing. The Coke has, has such a great um, creative team, we always have. So, wh what's your hill? What's your hidden talent? Can you recite Shakespeare sonnets in Klingon, or can you do a killer karaoke rendition of the Backstreet Boys? I can make a mean risotto. Oh, That's really? Yeah. What, what's the What's the key? Is it Is it low heat? Is it What is it? Specific oil? The wine. It's the shallots. And oh, it's the I love shallots. Yep. 
Yep. No, and, and patience. And patience. patience. And, and patience, That's definitely. Probably one of my secrets. I don't know. I think I I like I like um, I like metaphors. I think they're important to learn. I think that when you speak out of context for folks, um, right. it's really difficult for them to bring it into how they learn. Everybody learns differently. So finding ways in which explaining things in a metaphorical way is, is exciting. Um, I've had the fortune of having incredible bosses and incredible teachers in my life. And that's why we're all here is benefiting from other people's, you know, big ideas. Yeah, you were with... Um... 24-7 in the mid-2000s, right? So I started at Real Media, uh, one of the first employees of Dave Morgan, and that became 24-7 Real Media of Dave Moore. Um, and then worked with tons of really, really smart people. So super and what, what point did you realize that this was going to turn into something big? Because I, I worked a lot with 24-7 Real Media. They were one of my big um, providers. I, mean, I used to buy so many you know, junk ads. Uh, click the iPod ads. Well, I was certainly I think technology, so I can't talk about what kind of ads you were buying. But yeah, when did you know it was it was big? It was it, like was there a point where you're like this is going to be a multi billion dollar industry soon? I think we all knew that, right? I think we all could just tell that the investment, not only from the VCs but from the brands. And I guess when AOL made a run for Time Warner, and we all kind of shook our head because we couldn't really believe that something like that could happen. That was probably one of the bell cows. Um, and then when we saw the crash again, we got a resettling. But then yeah. after that, but after that, I think I think Mary Meeker said it was super interestingly back in the day when she said that the internet eats its young, and right. I think that's still the case. I think we shouldn't forget that. It's that you know we had companies that are no longer here with their presence, and we've grown from what is it, two hundred ninety million Americans to three hundred and thirty in the time period in which the internet's been around. So when you see the exponential growth of the number of impressions, it doesn't line up with that respective 12% growth. But at the end of the day, it's ways in which we're engaging with our devices that's getting us all smarter. If you weren't in the ad tech industry, what do you think you'd get into? Would you be like a professional mermaid, competitive eater, cult leader? I would be a, I'd probably be a teacher. Okay. It's a noble profession. Both my parents are professors. Yeah. Yeah. Rapid fire here. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Early bird or night owl? Analog or digital? Analog. All right, so before we go, if you were trapped on a de deserted island with Gary, I can't ever say it, Vanderchuk and Elon Musk, who would you team up with to survive and who gets sacrificed to the coconut gods? I would probably be, I'd probably be fishing on the other side of the island. And make it a nice <laughs> stew. Like and then probably partner up with who, who liked the stew the best. If there was somebody you could, if a historical figure you could have dinner with, who would it be and why? Uh, Ulysses S. Grant, probably. Okay. Uh, I think what he did to prevent the United States from going into a second civil war by standing firm and holding down for what so many people sacrifice their lives for to keep this country together probably is underrepresented in the history books. And uh, he was a, he was a fascinating character who had, had nerves of steel and courage and grit. What's your take on the simulation theory? Are we all just characters in a giant ad campaign created by alien overlords? Nope. We're as real no, as this is all real. real. We all have big feelings. And I, I ask everyone this, if you could send your text, uh, send yourself a text message in the past, when you started in this industry, what would you tell yourself? Stay strong. 
because it's only going to get more interesting and you, you have no idea how many amazing people that you're going to meet. So keep listening. All right, John, hit us with your best closing line. Leave our listeners with something witty, thought-provoking, or just plain outrageous. I wasn't prepared for any of this stuff. It's unfair. wise and summer otherwise. Okay. Anything else you want to tell us before we wrap up? No, I appreciate you finding the time to have a chat. It's been really enjoyable. And, Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. We'll try to get you on a panel soon. They're about an hour long. They're a little bit, you know, more intensive and more information. But, you know, we're just trying to have like these little chit chats with people, get to know them and um, distribute them. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I enjoyed day. Bye. And that's all, folks. Please consider sponsoring Adotat to keep independent and really witty tech journalism alive. We can't run this on good feelings and rainbows.